From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. What drives compassion? Is it just a response to a perceived need? Most, if not all, of the world's major religions espouse teachings or instruction to help others, specifically refugees. And compassion isn't only based in religion. Atheist organizations that assist refugees exist too. And that doesn't even touch how governments respond to people in need. The international aid industry is a network of government and non-governmental organizations, large and small, many of whom have resources dedicated to helping displaced people. But do we respond to all refugees in the same way? A Pew Research survey conducted just after the Russian invasion of Ukraine showed 69% of U.S. adults strongly or somewhat supported accepting Ukrainian refugees, while a similar survey conducted just after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan showed 56% of U.S. adults strongly or somewhat supported accepting Afghan refugees. What explains that difference of 13 percentage points of support? Where does compassion meet entrenched bias, and what does it mean for certain refugee populations? Today, we're talking about how the world responds to refugees and whether those responses are biased. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Tajrina Sajat. Tajrina is a professor here at the School of International Service. Her areas of expertise include refugees and forced displacement. Her recent publications include Once We Were Refugees, Security, Solidarity, and A View from the Global South in the Journal of Refugee Studies. Tajrina is the 2022 recipient of the American Institute for Bangladesh Studies Senior Fellowship for her current research on the politics of refugee reception in the Global South. Tajrina, thanks for joining Big World. Thank you so much for inviting me back for a discussion today, Kay. Yes, it is wonderful to have you as always. Tajrina, want to talk a little bit about the Rohingya, a Muslim major- ma- excuse me, a Muslim minority ethnic group in Myanmar. They have suffered decades of violence and persecution. You've done extensive work regarding the ongoing Rohingya refugee crisis of people leaving Myanmar. Can you give us a brief overview of the situation to make sure that everyone kind of understands the situation confronting the Rohingya? It may be helpful to begin to answer this question with a little bit of a background. The Rohingya people are a predominantly Muslim ethnic minority group, but there are also Rohingya Christians and Muslims within that group. They are residents uh, of Myanmar or what is known as Burma. And there's a complex politics regarding what name is used, which is a northern Rakhine, uh, the northern Rakhine state, which shares borders with Bangladesh and India. Now, there's significant research and debate about the origins of the Rohingya people. And today, it's too extensive to go into that discussion here. But to offer a little bit of context, some argue that Moorish, Arab, and Persian traders arriving in then Burma between the 9th and 15th century, who married locally, resulted in a population who speak a Bengali dialect, interspersed with words from Persian, Urdu, and Arakanese. Second, the presence of a large Muslim population in 
the country since 1824 followed British colonial practices which encouraged the arrival of migrant labor from what was then India to increase rice cultivation and profits in then Burma. Despite this history, the official Burmese administration's policy has always been to uh, assert the fact that the country has only been Buddhist and that those who call themselves Rohingya have no historical ties to the country or have any claims to citizenship. Myanmar's 1982 citizenship law played a significant role in terms of being instrumental in making the Rohingya stateless. And between 1995 and 2015, many Rohingya were issued temporary registration cards that were white in color, which was very different from the blue, pink, and green colored cards that citizens of Myanmar uh, were allowed to carry. So in every way, the Rohingya were made to feel and were legally made to be foreigners. Um, This all means that the Rohingya today are the world's largest stateless population. They have no access to citizenship in Myanmar or Burma, and their stateless condition has reinforced the state's narrative that they're resident foreigners, or in the government's terminology, illegal immigrants, quote unquote, who are unworthy of state protection. Now, the most recent uh, engagement with the Rohingya situation comes in at about uh, 2016 and 2017, when they have uh, when there was a large scale military crackdown on the Rohingya uh, population by the Myanmar military, and at that time, uh, about. Uh, Over 700,000 Rohingya, including more than 400,000 children, entered Bangladesh within the span of about less than a month. Unfortunately, uh, some of in the audience might know that on February 1st, 2021, Myanmar's military staged a military coup and overthrew the democratic elected government and replaced it uh, with a, mi- a military junta, which is known as the State Administration Council. Since then, the military junta with units that were implicated in the 2017 atrocities, have responded to the demonstrations with a nationwide campaign of mass killings, torture, arbitrary arrests, and indiscriminate uh, attacks against um, the civilian, civilian population that have amounted to crimes against humanity and in conflict areas uh, as war crimes. The military junta, in addition to obviously um, targeting um protesters and democratic uh, dem- uh, democracy uh, and human rights activists across the country have also continued to target the Rohingya community and they've impu- uh, imposed new uh, uh, movement restrictions on the community and have uh, added aid blockages on Rohingya camps and villages. And this has made the situations with regard to water scarcity and food shortages uh, very, very dire um, and have resulted in uh, significant outbreaks of diseases as well as ongoing malnutrition. That is definitely where where I want to start because we're going to talk about aid and I definitely want to talk about the internally displaced within Myanmar. But first, the lion's share of the Rohingya refugees, as you mentioned, have fled to Bangladesh. So just for a little bit of a, a of a look there, what is life like for the refugees there and how are they being supported in the day to day? 
Now, while it's impossible to outline every aspect of Rohingya life in Bangladesh, let me pick on a few, pick out a few issues. First is the current refugee population living in the official camps in Bangladesh um, amount to about one third of the total population in Cox's Bazar district, which is in the coastal area of Bangladesh. Um, and that is a significant number. Um, the Rohingya refugees are hosted in 33 extremely congested camps in the Kutapalong area in the Cox's Bazar district and the Kutapalong camp is has been known as the world's largest refugee camp. The Cox's Bazar district is also historically a low income area in Bangladesh. And so the camps are only within 24 square miles. Um, of radius. And this makes Cox's Bazar one of the most densely populated refugee camps in the world. It is more than, uh, I believe, one and a half times more populated than Bangladesh's capital, Dhaka. And Bangladesh's capital, Dhaka, is arguably the world's most densely populated city. So I, I hope the uh, our audience recognizes how incredibly congested the refugee camps are uh, in Bangladesh. Uh, the UN also actually um, provides certain guidelines in terms of what makes a refugee camp livable. But 19 of the 33 camps in Cox's Bazar actually function below the UN guideline. Um, overcrowding is a huge reason for this. Uh, this means that particularly the children and the elderly have remained vulnerable to poor sanitation conditions and, and to the spread of diseases, not to mention the extremities of weather, including heat and humidity during the summer months. And then in terms of uh, water sources, 22 of the 33 camps are uh, operating within the UN standard, uh, which means there are several camps left that operate uh, below the UN standard. Um, there is a dense, complex, and very professional uh, network of collaboration between INGOs and NGOs uh, in the refugee camps um, through which basic uh, services are provided for the children and for the elderly and for the civilian population. But despite this, there are still outbreaks of diseases. Um, certainly the pandemic was a very tense time in the camps. There are cases of malnutrition and because of a complex uh, range of factors, op educational opportunities remain uh, limited. And so exploitation and violence remain uh, the everyday lived experiences for many people in the camp, including, of course, uh, realities of gender-based violence, child marriage, and child labor. And Tazarina, you and I spoke on the first podcast episode that we did together a few years ago about the countries that host the most refugees and how it's not the ones that necessarily people in the West would think based on coverage. And Bangladesh, as you mentioned, is, is definitely one of the largest hosts of displaced people, refugees in the world. I think anyone who would judge their response in any way would be well served to remember that this is a country that uh, has many of its people who live in, in poverty and has been dealing with the influx uh, of the Rohingya since, as you said, the 1970s. So it is incumbent on other countries and international organizations who are not hosting the refugees to help these uh, Rohingya refugees who have fled Myanmar and, and also to help Bangladesh. So how are other countries and international organizations working to help the Rohingya who have fled Myanmar? 
Thank you, Kate, for this question, because this is a really important one. One is uh, the fact that, you know, uh, Bangladesh has its own complex political, economic, security and environmental challenges. Uh, And so to be a refugee host also means that the door has been open for a different dimension of these challenges, um, as well as opportunities in terms of, you know, how negotiations, political, social and you know, other types of negotiations have been happening with regard to being such a large refugee host country. Um, One of the things to keep in mind is now Bangladesh is regarded as a low middle income country. So it doesn't struggle with, you know, the immediate devastation of war and immediate consequences of large scale poverty that we have seen uh, Bangladesh struggle with uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. And so it does have... Uh, 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 specific uh, specific dynamics that we need to uh, sort of consider uh, and the commendable strides it has made in several aspects with regard to its own population. Um, uh, So uh, one of the things that, you know, I will talk about, of course, is the role of international actors. But I do want to acknowledge the fact that Bangladesh's response, not just the government of Bangladesh's response in terms of opening the borders, but a lot of the local uh, community actors, uh, the local civil society actors, and the role of national organizations that have responded to the crisis. So the world's largest NGO um, comes out of the global south, and it actually was founded in Bangladesh, and it's called BRAC. And it was one of the first responders to the crisis on the ground and continues to be involved in several large-scale projects in the camps. And it, I also want to mention that nearly half the members of the joint response plan that exists for the Rohingya are actually national organizations from Bangladesh. From the government side, you also have the Ministry of Disaster Management and Relief, the Ministry of Environment, Forest, and Climate Change, and then the government also put together the Refugee Relief and repatriate, uh, Repatriation Commissioner. Uh, and so it is a complex network of national organizations uh, and national actors who are involved. The other level uh, or the other side of the question is about the IDPs or the internally displaced population. And that opens a different can of, of questions and deliberations and considerations, because these are the people who have also been displaced uh, largely as a result of political factors and political persecution, but they have not crossed an international border. And so therefore are not even in theory um able to claim the protections and rights of who are considered refugees. In the case of IDPs in Myanmar, and obviously this is um, not just the Rohingya population, but other Burmese uh, populations impacted uh, by ongoing by the ongoing crisis, you certainly have the U.S. involvement and the EU involvement. Um, but I will emphasize that the crisis within Burma has remained chronically underfunded. The OCHA's 2022 uh, humanitarian response plan for Burma was uh, received only 42% of its required uh, allocation. Um, There are some international organizations that are inside Myanmar, for instance, the International Rescue Committee or Solidarity International. The UNHCR has some involvement through the cluster leadership role, it is called, particularly working with some local NGOs, civil society actors, and faith-based organizations uh, to provide certain kinds of immediate uh, relief assistance. But overall, uh, the majority of IDPs in Burma um, 
have faced different challenges because both national and certainly external actors have to negotiate with the Myanmar military junta for basic issues of access. Tazreen, as we've talked about, the current Rohingya refugee crisis has been ongoing since around 2016. And as you said, has has happened for decades before, but that's the most recent uh, influx. And 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. And the UN estimates that there may be as many as 4 million Ukrainian refugees in Europe. However, it's undeniable that the situation in Ukraine and its refugees have received disproportionate amounts of media attention in Western media, even if you look at the Rohingya crisis at the beginning in 2016, how much media attention it received versus that given to the situation in Ukraine. Why do you think there is a disparity of media coverage of these two crises? The invasion of Ukraine in the international system is significant in terms of great power politics, and that is absolutely undeniable. It clearly illustrates the fact that Russia has growing military and political ambitions vis-a-vis Putin's vision for the country on the international stage. And the invasion is therefore a source of great concern to the existing status quo, that is U.S.'s position in the world and Western Europe's sense of um, uh, sense and concerns about both regional and global security. Western Europe is also seen to be the main heart of the international system outside of the United States and and uh, the status quo uh, in terms of what we understand the world to be. And so there is this idea that, you know, a- any disruption by an aggressive actor that threatened modern liberal democracies need to be halted at, uh, at any cost. And, and certainly that is, explains a lot of the the prioritization of Ukraine and the kind of response Ukraine has received militarily, politically, and certainly in terms of media coverage. At another and even deeper level, we do need to sit with some uncomfortable questions. We have to ask why, despite the rise of other regional powers or the fact that the international system does comprise of so many countries and the fact that we as as a com- global community face so many crises why we only center europe um and uh, in the way that we see and understand the world in which we live so if we were going to critically examine um media coverage uh we have to ask the question of whose security and what kind of security is being privileged Privileged. What types of intervention and invasion are considered particularly disruptive and a threat to international security? What kind of uh, aggressive military actions and their consequence don't necessarily mil- merit the same level of condemnation and concern? And then it also asks us to reflect on who are constructed constructed to be similar to us and therefore more deserving of our compassion and moral outrage, and who, based on our perceptions of uh, distance and difference, seem less worthy of our empathy. So if you were to draw on that reflection, then it becomes clear that the differences in media coverage is not just in terms of Ukraine and the Rohingya crisis or Afghanistan, which captured world attention for a short period of time, but also in terms of other pressing crises, which have received far less attention even compared to Afghanistan or or the Rohingya. Uh, Along a similar vein and in light of recent research that has also been coming out, uh, we still need to question why and how we consider people further away from us geographically as being too different and 
too used to poverty and war to not merit our attention. Tazarina Sajad, it's time to take five. And this is when you, our guest, get to daydream out loud and reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. We've been talking about disparate global responses to the suffering of different groups of people. How can countries and international organizations better work to support refugees from all situations and ensure that resources, aid, and media coverage are shared more equally among those threatened groups who need it the most? A tragedy is a tragedy no matter where it happens and to whom it happens. And hunger is hunger no matter how far a person is struggling with it. It is unacceptable that so much of aid then go to military accept, uh, assistance in one context when food rations are being drastically reduced in others, resulting in absolutely disastrous outcomes. So I think it's important for us to sort of think about the fact that it's not to take away uh, you know, military assistance or humanitarian assistance from one context, but to ensure that drastic cuts are not made in contexts where people who may not mount to the level of geostrategic importance are made to suffer as a result of uh, calculations uh, with regard to um, great power politics. Second, I would say, is that we need to constantly think about the role of regional bodies and organizations. In the best case scenario, we have seen how the EU can function uh, with regard to Ukraine and how it has been able to um, marshal um, significant resources, uh, you know, work with existing international, domestic and regional laws and really focus on people's needs. The third, I would say, is the role of local communities and, and national NGOs. The Bangladesh experience with the Rohingya certainly has highlighted that low middle income countries can and are able to respond with innovation to a displacement crisis. And, and they are capable uh, of making complex political calculations. Uh, Bangladesh has certainly received quite a bit of uh, the, the thank you notes, but there needs to be far more effort to support and coordinate with these countries and allow the space for them to take leadership, which means that they should be allowed to center their concerns, they should be allowed to highlight their limitations and their capacities, and their proposals, as in the case of Bangladesh, having put together multiple proposals at the UN General Assembly, should be listened to. Along with this, I would say there needs to be a deeper reflection and stock taping, stock taking of the heavy-handed approach and engagement of INGOs and donor countries in local contexts. This is not to say INGOs are not needed and donor countries are not needed. We live, as I mentioned multiple times, we live in an aid-dependent world and the specialization and the skills of INGOs and the funding that is provided by donor countries are important. And sometimes the donor countries are very important in putting pressure on um, uh, refugee receiving countries with regard to human rights protections. But what kind of footprint do they have in a protracted crisis? How much resources are allocated for international presence as opposed to what local actors and national actors and local communities receive? The fifth is the role of the media. Um, we've talked about it, media, uh, media quite a bit, but media is a catch-all phrase. Um, and today the sources of information and disinformation is significant and large and growing. 
Uh, we also don't take into account. Uh, we normally, when we talk about the media, we allude to the Western media, but media is local, media is international, media is regional. And the fact that all of these different forms of media cover news differently. So in order to be relevant and informative and useful, media has to broadly continue to engage with more uh, thoughtfulness about how crises are covered, um, Journalists and reporters certainly get a lot of intensive training about biases, but the Ukrainian crisis painfully demonstrated that the assumptions and prejudices can easily expose themselves and so and create grounds to question media integrity. So the media has to be more careful about the use of its images, uh, the ethics of staging of images in order to produce a certain narrative. Uh, the use of specific words when a, a crisis is covered, as well as, of course, bringing in more perspectives, not just of of the refugee um, as a quote-unquote victim, as not just of a local actor as a passerby or, or uh, you know, as a witness to a, a crisis, but the voices and perspectives and the expertise of local journalists, regional and national specialists, on the ground who can speak much more knowledgeably about a crisis um, and that would definitely have a, create a much more informed audience about the things that are happening in the world today. Thank you. Tazrina, talking about media attention is, is one thing and certainly media attention does help draw dollars, donations from individuals, from it draws attention and attention generally leads to money. But in addition to the attention disparity, do you see a disparity in international aid dollars between those going to help Ukrainian refugees and those going to help Rohingya refugees? According to uh, Kiel Institute for the World Economy, and I and I hope I have um, pronounced the name correctly, it's a German uh, research institute, and they found that the Biden administration and the U.S. Congress have directed more than seventy-five billion dollars in assistance to Ukraine, uh, which includes humanitarian support, financial support, and military support. This does not, by the way, include all other war-related uh, U.S. spending, including, for instance, aid to allies. Um, but between the period of January 24th, 2022 and July 31st, 2023, $3.9 billion have been uh, sent to Ukraine for humanitarian relief only. This is for food assistance, healthcare, refugee support, so on and so forth. If we look at U.S. assistance with regard to the Rohingya, we actually have to take a broader context into consideration because the crisis in uh, Burma, Bangladesh and the region have all been taken together. And the U.S. total assistance for those impacted by the ongoing crisis since August 2017 has been $2.2 billion. So uh, $2.2 billion from 2017 to till now, 2023, compared to um, 75 billion in total, but certainly 3.9 billion in humanitarian assistance uh, within the span of a little under one and a half years. Now, this is absolutely true, as I mentioned before, that Bangladesh at the level of the government and from the NGO and civil society sector has dem demonstrated significant professionalism, capacity, and innovativeness in dealing with the challenges of immediate refugee reception and meeting the needs of refugees over time. 
But this is a fast-growing young population, and this is a population that has been made aid-dependent as a result of global dynamics of how aid works and how crisis works. And so the needs have not dissipated to the extent that explains the drop in funding. Yeah. And Tazrina, I want to be really clear with everyone that neither of us is suggesting that the awful situation confronting Ukrainian refugees is their fault. We're not suggesting they're not deserving of the help that they've received. But we are trying to look with pretty clear eyes at a disparity that exists. And when you talk about hosting refugees and you compare these two ongoing crises, it appears that several countries are more willing to accept Ukrainian refugees than Rohingya refugees. And you've kind of touched on this a little throughout about people who people who look like us, people who are further away from us. At the heart of it, why do you believe this is the case? There's a lot to unpack with this question. Um, and there's several, again, layers to this. Um, the first I would say is uh, refugees, um, you know, people who are persecuted and who are able to cross an international border almost always end up in neighboring countries. This has always been true. And so in every refugee crisis, the countries surrounding the context that is in a, in a state of political upheaval will have the most number of people coming from that country inside its borders. So this will be as a result of geographical proximity, geostrategic calculations of the country that is either accepting or refusing their entry, the historical relationship between the host country and, and the country in crisis, the historical relationship between the people of the receiving country and those who are arriving, perceived um, sociocultural, linguistic, and political ties uh, between the people of, of the two different contexts, uh, domestic pressures, uh, adherence to international and national laws regarding refugees and asylum seekers and existing means of protection of refugees, and the speed and ease with which people can cross a border to seek sanctuary. So all of these factors are important for us to consider as to why refugees end up in the places that they do. So at one level, the two situations are not comparable because geographically they are so far apart. And then a large proportion of Ukrainians have arrived in the U.S. initially through the southern border, even when Title 42 was in place. Um, and for Ukrainians, uh, an exception was made uh, to allow for their entry. And then later on through other venues that were made available to the Ukrainian refugee population. But if we are to consider other things, we need to uh, start thinking a little more analytically. First is the geopolitical importance attached to refugees themselves. And this was certainly in the case of the Cubans and others fleeing communist countries in the case of uh, the United States, uh, Eastern European refugees in the context of Europe. So, you know, what is the political significance of the refugee? Where are they coming from? Play a significant role as to why countries make that calculation of whether to accept refugees or not. And so acceptance of Ukrainians is both a symbolic and political measure. Uh, in that context, Ukrainians have significant political currency um, in that their acceptance signals a pushback against Russia's aggressive and military incursion. It also signals to Europe that you uh, to Russia that Europe is united and the US also stands against Putin's ambitious designs in Europe and perhaps beyond. There is also the expectation and understanding, either implicit or explicit or both, that accepting Ukrainians is a temporary measure, that once this dust settles and once the situation goes back to some form of normalcy, they will be able to return to Ukraine. In contrast, the Rohingya are a 
largely a very poor community and they have very little geostrategic importance, either in Southeast Asia and certainly for Western countries. Accepting them adds no political value or leverage to countries that are open, that may be open to accepting them. The other aspect is that the Rohingya are also a stateless population, uh, and that means they have no citizenship, and Myanmar, Burma has shown absolutely no interest in providing them with citizenship. So, you know, countries that have countries are very much aware that taking in the Rohingya is a long-term commitment, and it's not a temporary situation. Um, this certainly does not mean that the Rohingya are not there in the thousands across India or Malaysia or Indonesia. But, you know, compared to the kinds of protections, for instance, Ukrainians have been able to receive in, in Europe as a result of regional protection me- mechanisms, international law, national law, so on and so forth. Most of Rohingya living in uh, you know, South and Southeast Asia are not protected by uh, by different types of national laws um, or gaps in national laws or gaps in international laws. Um, and so they live as undocumented people. They f- are in the informal labor sector and they're treated as, a, treated as unwanted economic migrants. That means they're, they remain a very non-desirable community. I mean, it is important that we also address questions of racism and Islamophobia and securitization and criminalization of refugees, because this these factors do play a role here as well. There is significant racism and prejudice against the Rohingya community, including in Southeast Asia. Um, we cannot certainly deny the fact that Muslim migrants and refugees, by and large, are some of the most unwanted and undesirable communities in the world today. We've seen this in the context of policies of in Europe, uh, you know, when we have seen, you know, uh, treatment of Afghans, Syrians, Iraqis, so on and so forth. Uh, we've seen this in the context of the United States, and it still, it does have echoes in other contexts as well. So Islamophobia does play a role in terms of the extent to which uh, countries are open and willing to welcome the Rohingya um, in, in different contexts. If we contrast that to the Ukrainians, um, they are perceived as as the perfect victims of an aggressive actor. And so there's very little reflection on how um, prominent protection mechanisms, as I mentioned before, national, regional, international um, mechanisms that exist, uh, the legal pathways that have been created, even if they are temporary, create a very different reality for Ukrainians to be able to become economic actors, to uh, gain access to jobs, to access education, to access um, uh, some some form of integration in the societies that they are entering into. Um, this is not to say that there are not no challenges, but the fact that there is a plethora of protections and legal me- pathways for Ukrainians, and that puts them in a very different trajectory from the Rohingya in terms of both perception as well as in terms of their lived reality. Tazrina Sajad, thank you for joining Big World to discuss refugees, aid, and disparities in treatment. It's a complex issue, and I thank you for digging in, trying to help everyone understand, help me understand uh, how, how, these, how these disparities come about and what they mean. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. 
Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or review, it'll be like a notification that your flight home for the holidays is on time and you just got upgraded to business class. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time. 